I'm Jody F. Welcome to Homicidal Impulse. Tonight, we're going to discuss the unsolved murder of Evelyn Akubo and the near-fatal attack of her roommate, Ranko Carol Yamada. Picture it, 1970. The Vietnam War is raging. The threat of dying in a foreign rice paddy for an ill-defined military objective has galvanized young folks like a dexedrine shot. Peace and social justice are hot topics. Against this backdrop, three recent high school graduates from Stockton, California, set out across the country to attend a convention of the Japanese American Citizens League, which henceforth we shall call the JACL. The JACL is a social justice organization for Japanese Americans, as one might guess from the name. The organization is still active today and still doing great work. In 1970, the JACL convention was held in Chicago, and our three intrepid Stockton teenagers chose to drive rather than fly because they wanted to see the country. The three girls are 18-year-old Evelyn Akubo, 17-year-old Ranko Carol Yamada, and 18-year-old Patty Iwataki. They arrived at the conference without incident and checked into the luxurious Palmer House Hotel, which is also still in operation today. The girls were booked into room 725. On the evening of July 16th, Evelyn attended a convention dinner at a different hotel. She returned to the Palmer House at approximately 9.30 p.m. and went to an eighth floor room where Ranko and Patty were socializing with friends. Evelyn stayed on the eighth floor for 30 minutes and returned to room 725. About 30 minutes later, Ranko went to their room to get a radio and to see if Evelyn would rejoin the group. Ranko knocked on the door of their room but received no answer, so she opened the door with her key. As she entered, she saw Evelyn's naked body on the floor. Evelyn was on her back, her hands were tied behind her with drapery cord. She had a pillow over her head. A man suddenly popped out from behind the wall on Ranko's left side and grabbed her. Ranko will later describe the intruder as tall, black, and naked with a long, uneven, messy Afro hairstyle. According to media accounts of the time, the intruder, quote, pranced nude for a full minute as if he couldn't decide what to do with his captives. Having pranced himself out, the attacker then forced Ranko to lie down. He tied her hands behind her back with drapery cord. He cut off her clothes and covered her head with a sheet. He also tied her feet. He then turned her on her back. Ranko heard a noise and the man arose and began moving around the room. Ranko heard him take Evelyn into the bathroom and could hear Evelyn struggling as she was put into the bathtub. According to Ranko, and I've always found this to be the creepiest aspect of the case, as the attacker placed Evelyn in the tub, he was cooing to her in a sing-song voice, telling her how soothing a bath would be. In addition to being drowned, an autopsy will later determine Evelyn was stabbed in the abdomen and her throat was slashed. She was overkilled, in other words. 
When the attacker came out of the bathroom, Ranko heard the rustling of clothes as if the man was dressing. Without saying a word, he came over to her, lifted the sheet, and slashed her throat. Ranko then pretended to be dead, and the attacker left. After the intruder left room 725, Ranko hopped over to the door to make sure he was gone. She then managed to partially untie her hands. She tried to untie her legs, but was unable to do so. She then went to the telephone and lifted the handset, but couldn't speak because her vocal cords had been cut. I should note that because this was 1970, the telephone operator couldn't trace the call back to room 725. Ranko then began writing notes because, as she later testified, she thought she was dying and didn't want her family to think her death had been painful. Her jottings included, death is beautiful. It looks gory, but there's no pain. There must be absolute peace. He's black with a natural and don't blame him, it's not his fault. Ranko then dragged herself to the door and banged on the wall with a shoe. When no one came, she went to the bathroom to find something to cut the cords, binding her ankles. She was in the bathroom holding a razor blade when third roommate Patty Iwataki entered the room. Upon seeing Carol with the blade in her hand and blood streaming down her neck, Patty said, why did you do it? Thinking that Ranko had cut her own throat. Ranko then pulled Patty over to the notes to show her what she had written. Eventually help arrived and Ranko was taken to the hospital. She'd escaped death by a fraction of an inch. The blade had severed her windpipe, but missed her juggler vein by a millimeter. She was in the hospital, unable to speak for two weeks. Interestingly, although the attacker was nude, neither Ranko or Evelyn were raped. When asked by a UPI reporter whether the crime was a sexual assault, Francis J. Flanagan of the Chicago Police Crime Laboratory said, quote, I can't say. You'll have to draw your own conclusions. There were two naked girls. In 1970, forensics were limited to fingerprints, and as you would imagine, every hotel room is teeming with foreign prints. In the days before APHIS, in other words, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, Matching prints without a comparison sample was like searching for a needle in a haystack. No corresponding prints could be found. A search of the hotel and its environs unearthed only one item of note. A large bowie knife and a shopping bag hidden behind the ice machine on the seventh floor. The forensics lab could find no blood on the Bowie knife, however, so investigators weren't certain it was the blade used in the attack. And that's how violent the 1970s were.
It's totally possible the hidden Bowie knife and the double slashing on the same floor were completely unrelated. The homicide rate in the U.S. doubled between the early 1960s and late 1970s. There are various theories about the reason for this spike. Some criminologists speculate it was related to the lead levels of gasoline, which can cause an increase in violent behavior. Other criminologists blame increased drug availability in usage or concentrated urban poverty. Regardless of the reason, the increased homicide rate created panic in the populace. Rounding up, the homicide rate per 1,000 people today is 6. In 1979, the rate was 10. The 1970s were a palpably violent time. The homicide spike happened to coincide with the Black Power Movement. And in the Chicago media, there seemed to be an attempt to tie the Palmer Hotel incident to the Black Panther Party. The JACL did host a Black Panther meet and greet, but there's some dissension as to whether the Stockton girls attended. Early newspaper accounts stated the girls were present for the meeting, but later accounts allege the Black Panther confab happened before the girls arrived in Chicago. Regardless, despite the insinuations, there is no evidence linking the Palmer attack and the Panthers, only innuendo. Two months after Evelyn's murder, there was another violent crime at a downtown Chicago hotel. On the afternoon of November 26, 1970, an African-American man broke into a room at the Conrad Hilton. He then tied up the husband and wife who were staying there with their daughter, raped the wife at knife point, and robbed both victims. 17-year-old Lonell Robinson, who had previously worked at the Conrad Hilton Laundry, was eventually arrested and convicted of the crime. At the time, there was some speculation Linnell Robinson was also guilty of the Palmer Hotel attack, but his photo was sent to Ranko Yamada, and she apparently failed to identify him. Ranko Yamada and Evelyn Okubo's family attempted to sue the Palmer House Hotel for $1.2 million, alleging the hotel failed to provide adequate security. The suit failed because the plaintiffs were unable to show negligence on the part of the hotel. Roommate Patty Iwataki had chastised Ranko for leaving the hotel key in the door during their stay, so there were intimations of contributory negligence. Ranko Yamada, incidentally, went to law school and has had a fabulous career specializing in social justice issues. Fifty years later, Evelyn Akubo's killer has not been caught. The crime hasn't been mentioned in the press in decades, and it's unclear what evidence, if any, survives. Maybe the Chicago press and law enforcement have forgotten about this crime, but I certainly haven't. I have a friend who's getting married in Chicago next year, and if COVID doesn't upend her wedding plans, I intend to stay at the Palmer House, hopefully in room 725. 
I will not, however, under any circumstances, be taking a bath while I'm there. All right, it's time to personalize this crime. What did we learn from the attack on Evelyn Akubo and Ranko Yamada? Well, the most obvious lesson is the importance of keeping your guard up while traveling. Vigilance can never take a holiday. Just because you're in a fancy hotel doesn't mean crime can't afford to stay there. Bad things can and do happen everywhere. The second lesson concerns the importance of farewell notes. We should all take a few seconds and ponder what we'd write if we only had a few seconds to live before bleeding out from a neck wound. What's important to convey? I think Ranko Yamada's decision to describe the assailant was a smart move. Getting the attacker off the street before he harms someone else is always paramount. I think I would also personally include a few words telling my family I loved them. I must admit that death is beautiful is not a sentiment I expect to include in my murder note, but everyone is different. Plus, remember, it was the 1970s and everything, including murder notes, was far groovier back in the day. The final and most important lesson served up by this week's podcast stems from the interplay of two disparate elements, crime and social justice. The JACL was an organization dedicated to promoting peace and good relations among the races. For such a crime to happen at the JACL conference was the ultimate irony. I would hope this goes without saying but the fact that the killer was described as a black man says nothing at all about the African-American race in general. We are all one race, the human race. Killers come in all colors, races, and ethnicities. However, just because you want killers off the street doesn't mean you're opposed to social justice. Protecting the vulnerable members of society from predators is a form of social justice. Yes, the prison industrial complex is out of control, but that's because we've been incarcerating perpetrators of nonviolent crimes. The only offenders who need to be locked up are the people we're afraid of, not drug offenders and people who can't afford to pay their parking tickets. These people we're afraid of, they need to stay behind bars until they're no longer a threat. Liberals and progressives want to help vulnerable people, and keeping violent predators behind bars does just that. This has been Homicidal Impulse with Jody F. Don't forget to lock your doors, even if you're in a hotel. <laughs>